Great to see you all. Nice to have some visitors. Nice to have some old fogies as well. And um, we're going to be looking at a very exciting passage from the Bible this morning. Uh, it's, it's Acts <coughs> chapter 1, the very, very beginning of Acts. Um, if you've got a church Bible in front of you, it's on page 1092, if you want to follow it. So this is, this is the Dr. Luke writing. He's the one that wrote the book of Acts. And this is what he says, Acts 1 verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Sorry, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And that, that is a, 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 an awesome passage. It's a very, very rich passage. There's all kinds of teaching and themes uh, in that. Not all of which I'm going to cover this morning. Um, but um, last Thursday, anybody know what last Thursday was? Ascension Day, that's right. So um, the Ascension Day is the, 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 the day in the church's calendar when we remember and celebrate what we've just read in Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> and in our particular church tradition, we don't make a, a great deal about it, to be honest. Whereas those of you, um, some of you will know that in Catholic countries, it's a national holiday. So in France, uh, Ascension Day is, is a national holiday uh, to celebrate the ascension of Jesus rising into heaven. It's, an, it's not a bad reason for a holiday, um, but of course it's a bit awkward because it's always on a Thursday, because it's always 40 days after the resurrection, which we celebrate on Easter Day. So it's very appropriate that today, the Sunday after Ascension Day, we are looking at this passage. 
uh, at the end of our preaching series about looking at the resurrection. It's almost as if we'd planned it. Doesn't happen very often, but sometimes it works. So I think it's helpful for us to remember that Acts, uh, this book of Acts in the Bible, is actually Luke book 2. So if you remember at the beginning of Luke's gospel, um, Dr. Luke dedicates it to this person, Theophilus. Beginning of Luke's gospel, it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that's Dr. Luke writing at the beginning of his gospel. And now as he begins his sequel... He says this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So this is the sequel of Luke's gospel. And just as the gospel ends with the ascension of Jesus back up into heaven, so the sequel begins with that uh, event of the ascension. And it's interesting that Luke is so clear to state that before Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, he began to do and teach things. Uh, That began almost should be in bold print because the clear implication is that after the ascension, Jesus would be continuing to do and teach things to the disciples. And how is that going to happen? After the ascension, when Jesus is in heaven, he's no longer going to be with the disciples in in bodily form. Well, it's going to go happen through the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking to them about and which he's about to send them. Uh, We're going to celebrate that uh, in Pentecost next Sunday. Some people have suggested that the book of Acts, which is sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles, should really be called the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles because the presence and the activity of God's Holy Spirit is woven throughout the events that we read of in this book. So Luke's first book is about Jesus' doings and teachings on earth and Luke's second book is about what Jesus continued to do from heaven by means of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the believers. And Ascension and Pentecost, between them, they represent a a watershed between those two ministries, between Jesus' earthly ministry in the body and heavenly ministry through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And we we talk about this as being the beginning of, of the church age. Often we talk about Pentecost next week as being the birthday of the church. But this this period between the ascension of Christ back up into heaven and his promised return, which the two two men dressed in white, the angels, said about uh, at the end of that passage I read, this same Jesus who's been taken away from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. 
this period between Jesus' ascension and return is, is the church age. It's the age in which we are living. The age <coughs> in which Luke wrote about in his second book, and in a sense has never come to an end. We're still living in the church age. And we read that after the resurrection, Jesus showed himself to the apostles and others and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. That's what Luke says here in verse 3. And Justin last week uh, preached on 1 Corinthians 15. If you weren't here, you can listen to it on a podcast. Um, and, and last week, Justin's... Um, was, was reading from 1 Corinthians 15, in which Paul tells us that after Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter Day, he appeared to Peter, and then to the Twelve, and then to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. And then Paul adds, most of those are still alive at the time that he was writing his letter to the Corinthians. And then Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. And we know from the Gospels, that even that list doesn't include everybody because, because we know that Jesus appeared to Mary, um, Jesus appeared to Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus, etc., etc. So there were a lot of people who saw Jesus um, after he came back from the dead. And over that period of 40 days, Jesus met with the disciples and talked to them. He ate and drank with them. He let them see him and touch him. And Luke says here in verse 3, he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So he had been properly dead, and now he was properly alive. But with a new, eternal, incorruptible, heavenly body, as we were hearing last week, the first fruits of those who are going to rise to eternal life. So the, a pattern of what our resurrected bodies will be like. The kind of resurrected body which we believe Ema will be enjoying now. We've got no detailed record of exactly what Jesus said to the disciples in those 40 days, but Luke tells us just simply here that he spoke about the kingdom of God. In other words, he spoke to them about the same things as he'd been talking to them about before his death and resurrection. We, we did a preaching series last year about um, the kingdom of God. And we said that wherever Jesus is proclaimed to be Lord and people live in submission to him and his rule, that is where the kingdom of God is. It's not a geographical location. And I love verse 4 in this passage that, that I read. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command. And if you didn't know that this was in Acts, you could easily think it was from Luke's first book. Jesus was eating and drinking and talking with them, just as he had done before his crucifixion and resurrection. It was so natural in the space of this um, 40 days for the disciples to be eating and talking with somebody who had been dead. You know, just, just get your heads around that a little bit. Um, he still bore the scars of his crucifixion, as we know. 
and we know he could suddenly appear through locked doors and he could suddenly disappear from their sight. But they were completely at ease with this. They weren't phased by it at all. And no wonder that Luke says the disciples were convinced that Jesus had been dead, but now he was alive. It's not like a, a fleeting glimpse of a, a vague, ghostly kind of figure. No, no, no. They spent 40 days with him, eating, drinking, touching, talk, discussing things with him, so that they were convinced that he was alive. And such was the power of that conviction, as we heard last week, that all of them ended up giving their lives for this truth because they uh, refused to recant, because they knew the truth, <coughs> that Jesus had been dead, but now it was alive. And it was in this context of this meal with them, as so often in his time with them, that he gave them this, this instruction. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in one sense, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have been familiar uh, since their early years with the promises of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So the book of Joel, his prophecy Joel 2.28, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Ezekiel 36.26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And some of these disciples had heard John the Baptist say, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And they sat with Jesus in that upper room the night he was betrayed. And they heard Jesus say, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And now, Jesus says in verse 4, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I wonder if we can sort of get our heads around how these guys must have been feeling. Can you kind of feel the sense of anticipation? These, these disciples had lived through the most amazing, significant events since the creation of the world. And it was happening right before their eyes. They'd seen Jesus um, who died on a cross 
as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind, as he had predicted. They'd seen him risen from the dead to conquer death and open up the way to eternal life, as he had predicted. He was about to leave them and return to heaven, as he had predicted. And now he was predicting that they were going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they surely didn't know what on earth to expect. But they must have been excited. They must have had a sense of anticipation. After all the amazing things that they'd seen Jesus say and do, teach after his death and resurrection, what on earth was God going to do next? And Luke tells us, that Jesus had talked to them about the kingdom of God. And so it was almost natural for them to think that in the context of these extraordinary things, <coughs> perhaps now was the time when Jesus' talk of the kingdom was going to be fulfilled. If the Spirit is about to come, is the kingdom about to come as well? And their question in verse 6 betrays a misunderstanding about the coming of the kingdom of God. So they say, they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And it's, it's like that <coughs> the, um, the two disciples that Jesus, risen Jesus, met on the road to Emmaus. You know, they said, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So these the disciples were still looking for a restoration of the old kingdom. The, the glory days of Israel, the days when David and Solomon were king and uh, all the surrounding nations uh, looked up to them. They were looking for a restoration of uh, an earthly kingdom with political and economic and military influence. And Jesus, in his response, opens their eyes to, to the kingdom that he has in mind one in which they are going to be his witnesses, telling about his works and his teachings, about the meaning of his death and resurrection, offering people the promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life spent in God's presence. And this is not just for Israel, as we see in verse 8. It's for Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, even to Tonguin Lice. And how could, they, how could they possibly have imagined that what they said and did, this message that they were going to proclaim, would last for thousands of years, and it would lead billions of people all over the world to believe this message? and accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. How on earth was that going to be possible? How on earth was this ragtag band of ordinary people, you know, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, not a priest or a rabbi or a scholar among them, how were they going to change the world? And yet they did. And they did it without the presence of Jesus alongside them in the flesh. And it's clear they did it without a clear understanding of what the kingdom of God was, 
or about the implications of all the events that they'd witnessed. How on earth could that happen? Well, it happened because of the baptism and power of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promised they would experience in a few days. And Jesus tells the disciples that this power of the Holy Spirit is given them to them to be his witnesses. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, they are to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, Ju Judea, Samaria, and spreading out to the ends of the earth. And it's th that wording is very similar to what we call the Great Commission. Jesus' words at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's what we call the Great Commission. It's Jesus' call to the disciples and to the church that followed them to spread this amazing good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life for all people, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that is the commission which the church universal has and which every local church has. It's the commission which we have, Anum Baptist Church. And it's the commission which every individual believer has. If we've put our faith and trust in Jesus, then we have also committed our lives to serving him and to being part of this great mission of telling others and leading them to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I don't believe that is an optional extra for believers. It's an obligation. So if we're Christians here this morning, then we are called to be part of that great mission. We are called to be missionaries. That doesn't mean that we have to give up our jobs and go to live in the jungle somewhere with some unreached people groups. It may mean that. But there are plenty of unreached people around where we live, aren't there? And I, I, do, I do certainly feel that as a church, we have somewhat neglected the wider mission of the church outside our small patch. And I hope that is something that we're going to develop in the future but for us personally it may just mean that we have to have a missionary concern for our friends and our neighbors our work colleagues and you know i, I want to ask us all especially myself a very awkward question when was the last time that i was a witness to the good news of the death and the resurrection of jesus as a church, I wonder if we've lost a little bit of our vision of mission. Because it has to be central to what we are as a church. Um, Archbishop William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, in former days, he said, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. And we mustn't lose sight of that, must we? If we lose sight of the fact that our, our task is to pass on this message, um, the church will die. 
But just as that commission to those first disciples is still ours today, so also I believe that the promise of the Holy Spirit is ours also today. So the promise in verse 5 John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That promise is clearly for those 120 disciples that were going to be together uh, in that room uh, in 10 days' time, which Phil is going to be speaking about next week. But I also believe it's meant for all believers because when Peter speaks stands up at the day of Pentecost and talks to the crowd in Jerusalem. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God's great gift for every believer. And just the same way that the Holy Spirit um, was the means through the book of Acts by which the disciples um, did uh, reach the people around them. So through the Holy Spirit, the disciples did things, taught things, and the Holy Spirit inspired, equipped, directed, empowered them in mission. I believe that in just the same way, Jesus wants to send his Holy Spirit into our lives too. And I believe that if we're going to fulfill Christ's command... To spread the gospel, to speak to those who don't yet know him. If we're going to fulfill that as individuals and as a church, then we need to have the Holy Spirit's equipping and power and gifts and influence in our lives. Because just as the Great Commission is for all believers, so the great gift of the Holy Spirit is for all believers. The kingdom of God and the Spirit of God go together. John Stott says this, when God establishes the kingdom of the Messiah, he will pour out his Spirit. This generous effusion and universal enjoyment of the Spirit will be one of the major signs and blessings of his rule. And indeed, the Spirit of God will make the rule of God a living and pre present reality to his people. As we've seen, as we read earlier, the Holy Spirit is described by Jesus as God's gift to believers. And Jesus also promises the disciples that they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it's clear that this is what happens 10 days later at Pentecost. Peter uses the same phrases about being baptized in the Holy Spirit when he's uh, referring to what the events that happened in um, the centurion Cornelius' household um, sometime later in Acts 11. And Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, says we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Else, elsewhere, we read about people receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when Peter stands up in, in, uh, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, that's what he talks about, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then elsewhere, we, um, we read about people being filled with the Holy Spirit. So in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 18, Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And as I'm sure many of you are aware, there is controversy between different Christians about what these phrases mean. Receiving the gift of the Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. Do these things happen when we are converted or is it a second experience? Is being baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit a one-off thing or is it ongoing? What difference does it make being filled with the Holy Spirit in our lives? How does this relate to the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit? So, lots and lots of questions, which I'm not going to talk about today. You'll be pleased to know. But what I do want to do is I want to briefly talk to you about my experience, which I know uh, a number of you have heard before. And others will have different experiences. And, you know, we have to recognize that God deals with us all as individuals. The way that we came to faith is all different. The way that we are experienced, the Holy Spirit will be on an individual basis because God deals with us as individuals, as people. You know, this isn't like a, a kind of a theory. This is how God works with us as individuals. So, I'm sorry for those of you who have heard this before, but for those who haven't, it might be new. So I became a Christian at the age of 18. I heard a sermon uh, which I'm convinced for the first time explained to me why it was that Christ had died on the cross to take the punishment for my sins so that I could be forgiven by a holy God. And I believe that the Holy Spirit was working in me then actually prior to that service in helping me to see the truth of the gospel and he was certainly working in me afterwards as I read the Bible and prayed and I started to learn to worship God and to develop a personal relationship with him. And then some years later, Lynn and I moved house um, we went to Sheffield and we started attending a church where the believers seemed to have a lot more life about them. They seemed to have a lot more joy. They had a greater sense of worship. They had a greater sense of God speaking to them and a sense of intimacy with God. And these people talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I was hungry and thirsty to know God in that kind of way. And so I did what all hungry and thirsty and searching people did, I went on a course. And the course was about the Holy Spirit. And, and it, they looked through the Old Testament prophecies, some of which I just read earlier, and they were, talked about the promises of Jesus in the, in the Gospels and the, apostle, and the promises of the Apostles in the New Testament. And I just knew that I wanted to know more of the Holy Spirit in my life. And at the end of the course, we were invited to be prayed for if we wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and actually I was the first person to put up my hand. And I was prayed for, and I had an amazing experience of God. I was overwhelmed with joy, uh, which led to both crying and laughing at the same time. I had an amazing sense of being accepted and loved as God's child, and I started speaking in a language that I had not learnt. And that day transformed my Christian experience. I started to hear God speaking to me more. I started to experience some of the spiritual gifts which we read about in the New Testament. I experienced more intimacy in worship. It wasn't just singing about God anymore, it was singing to him. God's word came alive to me in a new way. I had a clearer sense of God's guidance and direction. And albeit with ups and downs, that has been my ongoing experience for the last 34 years. Now that's my story, very, very briefly. And I did check it with uh, my wife Lynn before and she, she said I could say that she confirmed everything I have said. And Lynn's story about being filled with the Holy Spirit is completely different to mine. And I'm very conscious that we have to be very wary about trying to squeeze everybody into our mold and trying to make things happen kind of by rote. You do A, B, C, and D, and the result is E. And I don't believe God always works in that way. In fact, I don't believe he normally does. So I'm telling you what happened to me, and I'm telling you that I don't expect things to be the same for us all. But what I am sure of is this, that those of us who are Christians, who are called who call Jesus Saviour and Lord, we have a command over our lives to be Jesus' witnesses, to be building his kingdom, and that the Holy Spirit is the gift, the resource, the power through which we are meant to accomplish that task. So wherever we are on this adventure of knowing and serving God and experiencing the indwelling power and presence of his Holy Spirit, I want to encourage us to be hungry and thirsty for more. In that verse that I read earlier, Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, instead be filled with the Spirit. And that verb fulfilled is in the present continuous tense. In other words, it means go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So wherever we are on this journey with the Holy Spirit, whatever our experience, whatever our theology the command of the word of God is very clear. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. In our statement of values as a church, we say this, Anan seeks to maintain a conscious openness to all the Holy Spirit would do. We advocate the Spirit's baptism, fullness, fruit, gifts, power, and inspiration for the individual as well as the church corporately and seek to further revival in the nation for the nations. And I think that's a good balance. 
We want to be open to whatever it is that the Holy Spirit would do. But it's for mission. It's for us to further revival in Tonguin Lice, in Radha and Morganstown and Penturk and Gwylod, Tafswell, Tiru, and wherever else we live. If we're to fulfill our mission, whether as individuals and as a church, the mission given to us by the risen, ascended Christ to reach lost people with this great good news of the gospel, then we need all of the resources that God has for us. As a church and as individuals, let's be Ephesians 5.18 people who go on being filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over. We're going to sing this lovely song, Hover O'er Me, Holy Spirit. So this is a, this is a Victorian song. So this is not one of the fuddy-duddy, new, charismatic, wishy-washy kind of songs. Amen. This is written by a Victorian gentleman, no doubt with a grey beard and a three-piece suit. But it's, it's, to me, it's a powerful, powerful song. It's a personal prayer, actually. And I want to encourage us as we sing this, don't worry about how you sing. Don't worry about what it sounds like to anybody else. This is a prayer. And just like we were talking there about God hearing our heart's cry, as we sing this song, God hears your heart's cry. And if your heart's cry is to be filled more and more and more with his Holy Spirit, God hears that. And I believe he will answer. So let's uh, stand together and sing this lovely song.